Turn with me this morning to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 5. Nehemiah, chapter 5, and we've been reading for five weeks now what is kind of like a logbook for this man, Nehemiah, who was commissioned by the Persian king to go back to his hometown as a project manager of an impossible task the rebuilding of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. His workforce, a bunch of poor people who were left behind 70 years before. They were so poor, they weren't even worth fussing over. Some nobles, some priests, some servants, perfumers, goldsmiths, boys and girls. Let's just say they're not a, uh, they're not a qualified, certified Uh, workforce for engineering and building an impenetrable fortress. But they're working hard. And Nehemiah writes down in his logbook that people have a heart for the work. His materials? Well, the burnt stones are still laying in heaps of rubble from 70 years before when uh, the Babylonian king came through and burned the city to the ground. So lucky for them, they've got some burnt stones lying around. And yet somehow they're bringing these stones back to life and the wall somehow, by God's grace, has reached more than half its height at this point in the book. His time frame, very short. Very short indeed. In fact, chapter 4, the enemies of God are pressing closer. They can feel their hot breath on their necks as they begin to send threats. And they begin to pose as if they're going to any moment come through and strike and kill them, doing whatever they can to try to intimidate Nehemiah and his workforce. And we saw last week the people begin to panic. And the people are quickly wearing out for how hard they're working because they're trying to get the project done as quickly as they can with the threats of the enemy attacks hanging over their heads. However, Nehemiah encouraged the people. He said, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord and his strength and his might. And he said, fight for your families. Fight for the city. Fight to finish the wall. And somehow, chapter 4, we found the people fighting through the pain, fighting through the panic, working harder than ever. Nehemiah says, in fact, me and my men didn't even take our tool belts off at the end of the day. We just slept in our dickies, woke up the next morning, and went right back to work. Resuming construction every morning. Despite the impossible workforce, despite the impossible materials, despite the impossible time frame, somehow Nehemiah and the people soldier on. What on earth gives them that kind of motivation? I think it's a vision. They have a vision in their mind of what this new city is going to be like. They've got a vision for the new Jerusalem. And although Satan has done everything from outside the walls to try to distract them, to discourage them, and destroy their efforts to rebuild the city, they continue to labor day and night, fighting through the panic and the pain powered by 
hope. That's what ultimately this comes down to. This project is brought to you by hope. That's what keeps them going. This impossible workforce working with impossible materials on an impossible time frame. Hope in the new Jerusalem. But what if the enemy can rob the people of the only thing at this point that keeps them going? What if the enemy can rob them of their hope? The people have hope that the life that they are building inside the walls will be different than what the life was outside the walls. While slavery and oppression and injustice and death characterized life outside the walls of Jerusalem. Inside, they have hope that their life will be freedom and brotherhood and justice and life. They hope. But what if they begin to see and believe that that's not true? What if the new Jerusalem turns out to look really no different than life before? What if the new Jerusalem is looking more and more like just a new Egypt? Should life among the people of God just become a new form of slavery? What happens? when the hope of the people is threatened. That's what Nehemiah chapter 5 poses to us. So if you've turned there, let's stand together as we read the Word of God. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Further, there were some of those who said, with our, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to become slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for our men have our for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. 
And they said, We will restore these things and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do it as they had promised. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would dig deep into our hearts and into our pockets as we realize that the gospel not only affects what we believe, but how we live and how we care for those in need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Does anyone here like to watch, uh, watch crime dramas or uh, courtroom drama? Yeah, some of you? Mindy and I are in the midst of watching Father Brown Mysteries on Netflix. It's the, the, the main character is a Catholic priest who is more interested in solving crime than he is in doing churchly business. And so he rides his bicycle around the town, this little English countryside town that has an astronomical number of murders. And uh, he goes around and solves crimes. So if uh, the crime rate ever does seem to skyrocket in Newberry, I do own a bicycle and you all know where to find me. (laughs) Anyways, these 13 verses, though, of chapter 5 really play out kind of like one of those courtroom dramas or crime drama. First, we have the outcry where we learn about the circumstances of the people who are being wronged, who are being sinned against, the victims, so to speak. And then secondly, we read about the charges that are brought against the criminals, those, the culprits, are, are arrested, brought to court, and faced with their crimes. And then thirdly, we have the verdict. The judge hands down uh, guilty or innocent. And then finally, uh, the restitution. The criminals have to pay for their crimes. And so let's look at each of these scenes as they play out in the story here in chapter 5 which opens, firstly, with the outcry. Verse 1, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. And this word outcry is is meant to be this, this just groaning, this sound of distress that just arises from all of the people. Nehemiah says all the people, their wives included, everyone is crying out under a load of oppression. This is the exact same word that the Bible uses all the way back in Exodus chapter 3 for the outcry, the groanings of the people of Israel under the heavy burden of Pharaoh and their slaves in Egypt. But notice this time who the outcry is against. Not against a foreigner, not against a foreign power, a foreign king. Verse 1 the outcry arose against their Jewish brothers. And uh, Nehemiah summarizes their complaint in three different ways. It boils down to three things. Verse 2, he says, the first complaint is, we have no food. That's the first complaint. Verse 3, some are saying, we have no land. And then the third complaint, some, verse 4, are saying, we have no money. We have no food, we have no land, and we have no money. But the problem with these three complaints, if you read them, is that 
none of them are actually against their Jewish brothers. Is it their brother's fault that they have no food? No. And actually, they they point out the fact is we just have more mouths to feed than we have grain to go around. Is it their brother's fault they have no land? No. The people say we've mortgaged our land in order to get grain because of the famine. So it's the famine's fault, right? That they have no land. Is it their brother's fault that they have no money? No. It's the Persian king who's exacting this tax in the first place. Then what is their outcry all about? Let me explain to you what's going on here. So the people have an immediate emergency, right? We have no food. We will not live if we don't have something to eat. It's an immediate emergency. But the thing is, there is grain to be had. It's just not in their storehouses. It's in someone else's. So, these brothers offer, the ones who have, offer to supply the need for those who have not at a loan. They say, well, you mortgage your property to us. Give us the deed to your land, and then we will give you the grain for your immediate need. Have you all heard of the term sharecropping before? All right. Uh, That's what's essentially going on. Sharecropping was really big in the South particularly right after the Civil War, particularly with freed slaves, because they had this problem. No food, no land, no money. So what happened is the rich white landowners said, here, you can come farm on my property. And then uh, when they would harvest the crop, the landowner would take the whole crop, would sell it, would keep half of the proceeds for themselves, But then the slave also owed money because they had to borrow against that crop in order to get food and supplies and seed to sow. So then after the landowner took his chunk, then the merchant would take his chunk of all the debt that they owed from the past year while they were waiting for the crop to be harvested. Plus interest. And so what ended up happening is the landowners and merchants would often charge an exorbitant amount of interest to where the sharecropper basically made no money or fell in debt further and further, year after year. And what would often result is what some people would call debt slavery. It's essentially, they couldn't do anything about it, but year after year, they're working their hardest. They have no food, they have no land, they have no money, and year after year, they fall more and more in debt more and more enslaved sharecroppers powerless to do anything because they didn't own the land, which is exactly what is happening in Nehemiah chapter 5. Their brothers, their own flesh and blood, saw them. They have no food. They have no land. They have no money. And they wash their hands of the whole matter and they say, am I my brother's keeper? This isn't my fault. I didn't cause the famine. I didn't bring about all these mouths to feed. I'm not the king exacting a tax. Business is business. It is not my job to bail my brother out of his problem. 
Look at verse 5. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. These are our flesh and blood. Our sons are as their sons. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have even become enslaved already. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. And this is what the outcry essentially boils down to. Their own brothers are turning the new Jerusalem into the new Egypt. Because sons are becoming sharecroppers, are becoming slaves. Brother is selling his own sons and daughters to brothers. And they have no power to help Because their brothers are using the opportunity to rob their own brothers of their property, of their land, of their hope. They're intentionally turning a short-term need into long-term slavery. Are you following me? That's exactly what's going on here. And when Nehemiah hears this outcry and finds out what's happening inside the walls of Jerusalem, how people are being robbed of their hope by their own brothers, verse 6, he writes, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Verse 7, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. So secondly, we've come to the second part of the narrative. We had the outcry. Now it's the charges. Verse 7 continues. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your own brothers that they may be sold to us. Nehemiah says, here we are doing everything we can to buy our brothers back from the nations, from outside the walls, all the while, behind the walls, behind my back, you're selling these same brothers back into slavery. And how are they doing it? Here's the charges. Verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 7. He says, you are exacting interest each from his brother. So that's the charges. That's how they're doing it. That's how they're turning short-term need into long-term slavery is by exacting interest. They're setting up a loan in such a way as to intentionally enslave their brothers, to rob them of their land and give them no opportunity to ever recover. And this is directly against God's command in Exodus 22. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. Here's the problem. Not only are these brothers not helping their brothers out of the generosity of their heart, but these brothers are becoming loan sharks to their own brothers. Charging exorbitant interest with the intention of robbing their own flesh and blood of their freedom, of their fields, of their future hope. 
Where is the hope in a new Jerusalem where brother enslaves brother? Where brother loads an insurmountable debt upon his own brother's shoulders. And so we see, secondly, Nehemiah brings the charges, and it does not take Nehemiah long to deliver, thirdly, the verdict. Look at verse 9. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. The thing that you are doing is not good. He shouldn't even have to say this. He says, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? This is not good. This is wrong. In fact, he says, when brother is making his brother a slave by putting him further and further in debt inside these walls, it actually brings shame upon the name of the Lord. Can you imagine what Sanballat and Tobias and all of these enemies must have been saying when they heard news that these foolish Hebrews were buying slaves from them in order to enslave their own brothers inside these new walls that they're building? Nehemiah says, you are turning God into a laughingstock. Number three, the verdict Guilty. I'm clear as day, guilty. Lastly, number four, the restitution. Nehemiah basically says, you need to abandon these loans. You need to forgive these 100%. Look at verse 11. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Give it all back. The fields, the vineyards, the orchards, the houses, the interests, the everything. Give them back their freedom. Give them back their hope. Outside these walls, Nehemiah says, that's where we can expect to be enslaved, to be taken advantage of. Not inside. Not when it's brother with brother. In the new Jerusalem, the city that bears the name of the Lord, brothers will act like brothers with one another. Forgive their debts like you should have done in the first place. This is a city that belongs to the Lord. This is not a city of slavery, but of sonship. So... As we close this morning, we want to ask a few questions. What what does the Lord want us to learn from this whole ordeal that went on in the city of Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah? As we read this story, how does it speak to our present circumstances, to our community, to our homes, to our businesses, to our church? What are we supposed to believe? How are we supposed to live? Well, as we close, I want to just ask us to think about three just simple points of application this morning. Application number one, speak out. Speak out. 
Nehemiah surveys what's going on and he realizes the system has been rigged against the poor, that they are being robbed of everything, their homes, their lands, their inheritance, their hope. And he stands in the great assembly and he lifts a finger and he calls it out and he says, this thing that you are doing is not good. When we see people in our communities when we see programs in our society, when we see businesses in our town that make it their purpose to turn a poor person's short-term need into long-term slavery, we should speak out. This is not good. We should speak out against loan sharks and cash-advanced places that loan out things at exorbitant interest with the only purpose to enslave people when they have a short-term need and to take advantage of them. Establishments that loan out money at an exorbitant interest for the purpose of enslaving their customers and the most vulnerable among us. We should speak out against things like the lottery. Who here has ever seen a rich person standing at the gas station counter buying lottery tickets and scratch-offs? Anybody? Not me. I used to work at UPS. For four years, I'd ride the shuttle in and out of work, and I sat next to hundreds of blue-collar workers, and you know what I'd hear so often on that shuttle? Riding in and out to work. I can't wait till I win the lottery. It's going to change my life. They put their hope in an impossible game. The government is using the lottery to trick poor people into throwing their money away, money that needs to be used for their children, for their homes. The government is holding out a false hope to them, to the poorest people, and just giving them just enough. $10 win here, a $20 win there. Legends of friends of friends who one time won $1,000 on a scratch-off. And these poor people are going to the gas station counters and taking their paychecks and spending it all on false hope. Wherever we see the strong preying upon the weak, we ought to speak out. Because these people are our flesh and blood, men and women made in the image of God. When the poor are trampled on, when people are intentionally seeking to enslave them through debt and intimidation, are trying to bamboozle them, it puts God to shame when people made in His image are being turned into slaves. We have a duty before God to speak out, to cry out for justice, particularly for those who cannot cry out for themselves. First point of application, we need to speak out. Secondly, we need to consider Christ's forgiveness. Next week, we're going to read about Nehemiah and what he's been doing this whole time. So we've seen what the nobles and officials have been doing, but Nehemiah has been keeping back from us how he's been sacrificially giving to the poor. And when he says, listen, I have loans out there as well. We need to forgive all of the loans. Nehemiah has the most to lose. 
Nehemiah, the captain of this new Jerusalem, has the most to lose in forgiving the debts of the people. Consider what cost Christ, our captain, forgave you at what cost. God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If you're a Christian today, Paul says that your debt has been paid. But brothers and sisters, forgiveness is not cheap. Your wages, the debt that you have piled up, Jesus in one parable compares it to 60 million days wages. The wages of your sin is death. Eternal condemnation, suffering under the wrath of God. That is what you owe God. But when God posted our record in public, He nailed it to a cross and He hung His Son there. And as the last drop of blood flowed out of His own Son's body, He stamped on our debt record paid in full. It cost the Son His life the eternal Son of God, to forgive your debt. Have you ever considered how that ought to shape and change the way that you forgive others? Secondly, consider the forgiveness of Christ. Well, there's really two responses. And the first is what we see from the nobles and the officials. Uh, Verse 12, look at it with me. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Essentially, these guys say, whoops. Whoops. Oh, we didn't. That was wrong of us. Oh, well, now, thank you for telling us. We'll set everything straight. And even on top of that, Nehemiah does not trust them because he makes them swear to God before the priests. And then on top of that, he piles a curse and says, if you do not keep your promise, may God shake you out like I shake out my garment. What's so troubling about this whole ordeal is that it reveals that even though renovations are going on on the surface of Mount Zion, something is wrong with the foundation. Something is wrong at the heart of this mountain. We should not have to be told not to turn our brothers and sisters into slaves. There's another response. The Gospel of Luke records a story that I would bet all of you have heard in Vacation Bible School. A story that is very near and dear to my heart because it's a story about a wee little man. A wee little man named Zacchaeus. And the story goes that Zacchaeus was this vicious tax collector in the city of Jericho, taking advantage of people, robbing them of their money, taxing the poor to death, using his position to rob people. But one day, this man Zacchaeus, he catches wind that Jesus is passing through. And like uh, we short men are prone to do, he climbed up in a tree. And he he wanted to see who this Jesus was over the throngs of the crowds. And uh, up in that tree, he makes himself quite conspicuous to Jesus. 
As he passes under the limb where he's de- his feet are dangling, he looks up in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, you come down. For I'm going to your house today. Right? That's how it goes. Let me read to you how Zacchaeus responds to meeting Jesus. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus shows us our third and final point of application. We should not be like the nobles and officials. Love your brothers from the heart. If you have encountered Jesus Christ, if you have repented and believed, there is only one solution. If you believe, as 1 John says, that he has laid down his life for us, then we also ought to lay down our life for our brothers. Love your brothers from the heart. It's not enough to just not enslave your brothers. All right? (laughs) The church should be filled with brothers keepers. Men and women who see needs and meet needs. This is what the gospel does. It turns slaves into into sons. The church of God should be a place of freedom. There should not be a needy one among us because brothers and sisters see the immediate needs of one another and care for each other and provide. The church should be full of businessmen and businesswomen who are not content to simply say, well, business is business, but who actually care about the souls of their customers. It should be full of families that pull poor college students under their wing and provide for what they need. Full of men and women who seek out the widows and the the least of these in our midst and try to go and visit them and, and care for whatever needs they may have. In short, the new Jerusalem, the church of Jesus Christ, should be a place of hope. So let us ask ourselves this morning, am I more like the nobles or am I more like Nehemiah and Zacchaeus? The Bible tells us that we forgive little because we have been forgiven little. Have you come to the place where you realize you owe the eternal, righteous, holy God of the universe 60 million days wages? And the only payment is your life in eternal wrath, unless you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, that he has died on the cross so that your debt could be forgiven, so that you could have the eternal life of going forth and forgiving others and have a hope that what we're experiencing here, we're getting a taste of what we're going to experience forever when Jesus Christ comes back. Come to him. Put your trust in him. Leave the slavery of this world. Come to this city that is defined by hope and freedom through the cross of Christ. Proclaim with Nehemiah, all debt is forgiven. It has been paid on the cross of Christ.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would give us the courage and boldness to call sin, sin, to speak out when we see cycles of oppression and people who are intentionally uh, seeking to enslave the most vulnerable among us. May we be those who fight and protect them, who draw them into the church, who show them the love of Christ and care for their needs. God, we ask that you would provide for our needs. We are weak and feeble, and we have little. God, we pray that as we consider how much we have been forgiven in Christ, may we love our brothers from the heart, not out of compulsion. May we be moved with generosity to care for each other's needs as they arise. And as we do, may we shine forth that we are a people with hope, with a captain and a savior who has forgiven all of our debts and set us free. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.